Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. We have a terrific lineup for you today on a very complicated subject, uh, COVID-19, where the U.S. economy is going, and how critical needs of states and municipalities are going to be addressed, both with uh, federal aid and in the possible absence of future federal aid. An excellent, excellent panel to discuss this today. Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics, Austin Goolsby, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, and now professor at the Booth School at the University of Chicago. Dan Smith, uh, who heads the public administration program at the University of Delaware. And Julia Tennert, who has worn many hats as chief economist of the state of Utah, uh, state budget director, and now chief economist at the Gardner Institute, and also a member of the Volcker Alliance's state budget research team. It's a terrific panel. This is Thursday morning in, in the East Coast, and as of Thursday morning, the Dow is down about 1,000 points, almost 4%. So the market, after uh, after several days of, of great exuberance, is reacting, I think, to the news that things maybe are not quite as super-duper as, as uh, traders may think. So it's a, it's a very mixed outlook. And I'm going to introduce Susan Wachter, my co-host and the co-director of Penn IUR at the University of Pennsylvania, to get things going with her friend, Mark Zandi. Thank you so much, Bill, and welcome to our attendees. It is my pleasure to introduce Mark Zandi, who is chief economist of Moody's Analytics. And there is no one better to forecast our economy's future. Mark, you have been quoted as saying that uh, if we have a second wave, we may be in depression territory. I'm sure there are many ifs there. What is your forecast under various scenarios for our near term and outlook for the year? Thanks, Susan. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak to the group. And Bill, thank you. Uh, and it's uh, you know, a pleasure to be a part of this. I'll make uh, three quick points. And Susan, and I will get to the depression scenario, but let me make uh, three quick points. And let me begin with a little bit of optimism. I think the recession is over. It will end up, if I'm right, may being the bottom. It'll end up being the shortest recession in history, three months. March, April, May, we've got uh, business cycles dated back to 1854, but it'll end up also being the most, arguably the most severe recession in economic history. The peak to trough decline in GDP is going to come in somewhere around 12, 13%. And just for context, in the financial crisis 10 years ago, the peak to trough decline in GDP was about 4%. So this is, uh, by that measure, at least uh, three times as severe. But uh, the good news is we've turned the corner, and that's largely because the supply shock from the pandemic is now playing out. Uh, That, of course, is the business shutdowns. Businesses are reopening. Uh, That's going to provide some juice to growth over summer months, June, July, and August. And I do think by Labor Day, we will have recovered about half the jobs that we've lost. Unemployment will go into the high single digits uh, by uh, by that point in time. So good news is um, point number one, I do think the recession is over. Point number two, more, a little bit less upbeat, uh, the recovery is going to be a struggle. It's uh, not going to be a straight line uh, back. Yes, we're going to get a bounce here in the next few months as the supply side shock abates, the businesses reopen, but we still have the demand side fallout. Uh, so all the lost jobs, lost wealth, obviously losing a lot of wealth today, is going to uh, weigh heavily on consumers and, and businesses. And of course, I think uh, the pandemic is not over, even if we don't experience a severe second wave of the virus. The uncertainty around how the virus is going to play out and whether we get a vaccine or therapy, or when, how effective, how widely distributed, how widely adopted, these are imponderable questions. And as long as we're asking them, it's pretty hard to imagine the economy kicking into a, you know high gear. Uh, so I think the economy essentially goes sideways until uh, we get some kind of medical solution that we're all uh, reasonably comfortable with. Uh, and then even after that, we'll see stronger growth, but it's going to be a slog. 
have to work through a lot of different issues. And uh, in my view, it won't be until mid-decade, 2023, 2024, 2025, until the economy is uh, back to anything we consider to be comfortable with. I will say we've done a lot of work uh, taking that scenario and modeling what it means for state and local government budgets, and it's not pretty. The budget shortfall through uh, state and local government fiscal year 2022, so that'd be a couple of years from now, is about $500 billion in total. Obviously, I'm rounding. And that assumes that states use all of their rainy day funds, which are actually quite ample. States were pretty good about uh, building those rainy day funds uh, during the economic expansion. Um, you know, most states were quite prudent in uh, managing their financial affairs. You know, a few exceptions, but generally speaking. And the other assumption is that the federal government will, if we have the $500 billion shortfall, the other assumption is that the federal government will continue to pick up the tab on the health care costs directly associated with the virus. So that, that's a, a very large shortfall. And of course, state and local governments are already responding aggressively to the shortfall. Uh, we've already seen a loss of about a million, 1.5 million jobs in state and local government. Of course, these are Middle income jobs, I think the typical pay nationwide for a single government worker is about 65K. These are teachers, fire, police, emergency responders, hospital workers, the kind of uh, people you need at all times, but particularly uh, in a pandemic. So, you know, even under the optimism that the recession is over, the recovery is going to be a slog, and that uh, augurs poorly for state and local government budgets. Finally, the third point everything I just said assumes no major second wave. And uh, that's a big assumption, obviously, given what's going on. Partly what the stock market's reacting to today is the prospects that we are going to see a re-intensification of this virus. Uh, social distancing has broken down to a significant degree in many parts of the country. And it does look like uh, we're going to have another uh, serious bout. I'm assuming in my baseline that that doesn't lead to another round of widespread business shutdowns or even causes consumers and businesses to go back into their bunkers. But that, again, is a very uh, significant assumption. And then the other key assumption here is more government support, uh, another round of fiscal rescue. We've gotten a lot so far. Policymakers have done a good job in providing that support, but uh, their job is not done. Even though the recession is over, that is predicated on the assumption they will come up with another package of support. And a key aspect of that has to be more aid to state and local government. The federal government, Congress, the Trump administration have to come together and pass a piece of legislation that includes, as part of it, filling that budget hole, $500 billion for state and local governments. Because if they don't, then we are going to see continued mass layoff in state and local governments. Uh, we're not even halfway done the layoffs. And my forecast that the recession is over will be wrong. We will go back into recession even if we don't experience a, a major second wave. And that, Susan, would be the fodder for depression-like conditions. You know, there's no definition of what a depression is, but in my nomenclature, if we're in a world of double-digit unemployment for more than a couple of years, that is a depression, and that is the uh, likely prospects if we don't get uh, additional help from uh, federal policymakers here uh, very, very quickly uh, over the next few weeks, uh, next uh, a couple of months. Uh, so, Depression isn't uh, my, ba my baseline, but I am uh, assuming that uh, policymakers uh, do the right thing here and uh, provide uh, additional help to the economy, which has to include the tried and true form of fiscal support that is helping uh, hard-pressed state and local governments. Thank you very much for that sobering forecast, particularly on, of course, we, we can't forecast whether there's going to be a major second wave, and that's not under our control completely. But the coming together of leadership across the political spectrum to fund state and local or the lack of doing so, Mark, your forecast that that in itself will lead to layoffs that will bring us to depression territory is indeed sobering. I do want to remind folks that we are listening to a special briefing that is uh, put uh, together by uh, the Penn Institute for Urban Research and the Voker Alliance. You can see these or listen to these uh, special briefings, of which there are have been eight, on our websites. They are archived there. And we are pleased to provide this to the audience and to others who wish to link on in an asynchronous way. It is my pleasure now to introduce to today's audience 
Austin Goolsby. Austin Goolsby is currently the Robert Gwynn Professor of Economics at the Booth School of Business, University of Chicago. And Austin Goolsby is the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and a thought leader in the uh, federal spending and uh, the needs for the federal, local, state to come together or not for the economic, for the good workings of the economy. And right now, we have to say it's not working well. Austin, please discuss your views of the economic outlook. What will it take? What does your experience in the Great Recession tell us about what we should be doing now? Well, I love following Mark, and I follow closely his forecasts, and I kind of think that the description that Mark just gave of the economy, A, reminds me of 2009, when if you're old enough to remember the dynamics of economic policymaking in 2009, you may remember the the blip when the fall of 2009, the NBER declared that the recession had ended in June of 2009. And that wasn't completely accurate. It was not tone deaf, but not helpful for that moment because the level was awful. That's kind of what Mark was saying is that peak to trough, it's literally the trough it will have ended and we will be coming back. But for a lot of people, it's not going to feel that helpful that the recession's declared over because they're going to say that that makes it sound like it's saying, oh, well, the worst has passed, but absolutely not. The worst hasn't really passed. It's going to be this long slog. And I fear a little bit that the the nature of that steep downturn, followed by some relatively steep recovery that doesn't go all of the way, kind of turns the area of just the economic data back into the same partisan battleground that every other thing has turned into, where if you want the economy to seem like, if, if you want to think the economy is strong, there's going to be plenty of data points, mostly based on the rate of change that you point and say, ah, but look, we added more jobs this month than in any month in history. And if you're more prone to viewing the economy as bad. There's going to be plenty of things about the level. Look, the unemployment rate is higher than at any time since the depression, that kind of thing. An environment like that, to me, massively raises the probability that Washington is not able to agree on a sufficiently sized additional rescue package, that they will do what you've already seen doing. They say, well, you know what? Let's wait a few months before we, let's just see how things play out before we decide what to do. And one lesson maybe of the 2008-2009 experience is you should be very wary about the option value argument, where if you remember at the time of the stimulus in 2009, the argument went, look, we're going to do the biggest stimulus that the country has ever done. And if we need more, we'll just do more. But the problem, of course, is that if you find yourself in a long slog, then the political will of the public and of the policymakers to do more kind of withers away. And I fear that there is an environment that that could happen here, that we pass the CARES Act which wasn't really stimulus in a conventional sense. It wasn't, wasn't like a let's restart GDP growth. It was a relief bill. And if we wake up in July and August, there has been some substantial rate of improvement, but the level is really bad. I think the chance that people say, well, what are we doing? Do we need it? Let's wait a little longer, I think goes up. And then the final comment I'd say is the state's revenue doesn't depend on the rate of change. It depends on the level. And so in that sense, I 100% agree with Mark that it's going to be an awful, awful period for the states because the level is going to remain really bad for a long time. And as that happens, the two biggest threats going forward in the short term, I think, are the various small business monies running out 
potentially leading to a mass wave of closures of companies and a kind of a second wave of unemployment. And then the second is that the states faced with balanced budget requirements have to start raising taxes or laying off lots of workers in the face of the downturn. And that's another third wave or second and a half wave of unemployment that would face the economy. So for sure, it depends on the virus. I always say the number one rule of virus economics is that the best thing you can do for the economics is to contain the spread of the virus. If we get fortunate on that front, that we get treatments or we figure out that if half the people wear masks, then R will be less than one and the, the disease might peter out on its own. If we get fortunate on the virus side, then the worst case scenario might not be as bad. But I think we got to prepare for this. If we do nothing, then there are things that could snowball in, an, in a negative way. Thank you, Austin. I'm not sure I should thank you for the downbeat assessment on top of, of Marx, but I think it's sobering and realistic. It's way too soon to declare victory and to declare victory, take a lap and walk away and concentrate on the next thing. The reopenings are, are happening on the slow side and the pandemic is still with us. I want to turn to Dan Smith, different corner of academia, if you will. Dan is Associate Professor of Public Policy and Administration and runs the MPA program at University of Delaware. Uh, Dan is a public finance professor and is the past chairman of an organization many of you may have run into called Association for Budgeting and Financial Management. That's the budgeting and public finance wing of ASPA. And they do wonderful work at ABFM studying the, the mechanics of budget policy and of financial policy. Dan, I know you want one issue that uh, you want to discuss uh, is, is sort of we, we've touched on is how states are going to cope with this revenue loss and balanced budget requirements. And there's an in interesting dance that, that you've researched. And also talk some about the management challenges of dealing with pandemic unprecedented revenue losses uh, in many cases. And now we, we have calls at the, the city, state, and national level to reform, rethink, restructure the entire police function of state governments, which is just an important concern, but it's just one more thing thrown on top of a huge pile. And where is a legislator or a governor going to turn first? Because just there's there are lit fires literally burning it everywhere. Thanks, Bill. I'll try not to be too duplicative of what Mark and Austin said. I'll start by adding to the general landscape just that from a public administration perspective, states are really worried about timing right now. For states that piggyback on the uh, federal income tax deadline, you know, they're looking at, you know, a substantial portion of their receipts not coming in until past this current fiscal year. And to varying degrees, they either hoped or relied on uh, a phase four uh, relief package more directly to state and local governments. The CARES Act did provide $150 billion in funding to them, but it was specifically for new COVID-related expenditures that had not been in their most recent budgets. What they were sort of, again, it, it varies quite a bit. Some were hoping, some were outright planning on uh, phase four that was more direct relief as Austin said, a little more traditional stimulus, you might say. So a lot of them are looking at their fiscal year ending June 30th, and they're pretty nervous about it uh, for no other reason, timing, in addition to the long-term issues. So many have been looking at spending cuts. Some have proposed or have under consideration very significant spending cuts, tax increases, and you even see borrowing. You know, traditionally, in the state and local context, you only borrow to get hard long-term assets in exchange for it. You would not borrow to get through the fiscal year. So as the likelihood of a phase four fiscal relief package appears low, at least in public comments of last week from policymakers, the deadline becomes even more daunting. That said, that was last week, we're in a new week. Today is a different market. The markets are not the economy, but they seem to drive a lot of the discussion amongst um, national policymakers. Bring it all in terms of balanced budget requirements, institutional reforms. Um, I've done lots of research on state balanced budget requirements and going back to 2005. 
So I think there are some medium and long-term institutional considerations states might consider. Uh, first, rainy day funds, even though they have been made ample since the last recession, in general, they aren't set up for truly transformative events like the COVID-19 pandemic. The interaction with the balanced budget requirements is that in terms of the written letter of the law, few states have very strong no deficit carryover balanced budget rules. The balanced budget rules tend to be silent or vague on which fund types. We've sort of all agreed normatively that it's the general fund. When you actually look at legislation, they don't always actually say it's the general fund. And most of the time, they don't say what the basis of accounting is. Governments are complex. They use cash, modified accrual, and they usually don't use accrual in their budgeting, but they do prepare financial statements on all three bases. And when it comes to these balanced budget rules, they often don't actually say what is balanced. Are we talking cash? Are we talking modified accrual? Are we talking about expenses, outflows, expenditures? Those all have different meanings. So balanced budget rules actually have much stronger normative force over the years, and they have strong administrative procedures behind it. Norms and administrative procedures are very important, but they are somewhat malleable. So if states want to think about a medium and long-term solution here, they might thinking about creating sort of a new deficit management policy that allows some sort of expenditure smoothing over multiple years. Maybe you involve the rainy day fund there, or maybe you have to imagine a fund that has bigger reserves than a traditional rainy day fund. But they have to think about hedging against future events that are truly rare, truly devastating. And again, the political incentive is not always there, right? I mean, we all hope the next pandemic is in 100 years, but maybe it's this pandemic lasts three more years, or maybe the next pandemic is only five years away. So I do think this is some time, this is a good time for states to consider the possibility of a new way of thinking about institutional reform to have a deficit management policy that's sort of at the intersection of balanced budget rules and rainy day funds and maybe something else entirely to give themselves some security against borrowing and relying on stimulus. On COVID particularly, again, the CARES Act provided a lot of resources for addressing it from a healthcare perspective. It seems like even if there is not a traditional stimulus down the line for things that are not related to healthcare, that support will remain there. However, when you listen to experts, one of the most alarming things about the recent increases in hospitalizations in several states is that the sources of the infections are unknown. Previous spikes were traced to nursing homes, meat processing plants, and other sort of captive audiences, and states were able to go in and laser focus on dealing with those captive audiences. It seems to be more community-based and untraceable. So if states want to maintain their reopening trajectories, they must prioritize getting their contact tracing programs online and importantly, establishing a culture of mitigation, widespread use of masks, frequent hand washing, social distancing where feasible. There are some states where they're still under emergency orders where they are compelling people to wear masks. There are states where they're recommending it. There are some where they're strongly recommending it. I would say at this point, states could should view a strong recommendation for wearing masks and other mitigation things as the minimum standard if they really want their reopening trajectories to continue. Because as Mark said, and you've heard other experts say, we don't think there's a lot of political appetite or economic feasibility to shutting down again. So the question here is, if we're going to reopen and remain reopen, how can we do that successfully? Fiscal rebound can't happen if reopening falters. So the challenge there, of course, is that COVID mitigation has become interwoven with broader political and cultural considerations. Finally, I'll just add a, a note to the police reform discussion from my area of expertise is I just would caution people who are engaging this conversation to think about the magnitude of the spending, right? If you look on social media, you'll see people share graphs to show police spending is, you know, 80% of a government's expenditures. Using uh, quality data, Urban Institute, U.S. Census data, you can find police spending is on the order of about 4% in the aggregate for state and local expenditures, a little higher for local-only expenditures. And then there's huge variation by city on a per capita basis. So I would just 
caution, encourage people to think about the data sources, to really look at the data. There's Urban Institute has some data out there. The Lincoln Institute has fiscally standardized cities database to give you some sense of police funding. Also, when it comes to uniform services in general, police included, you have to think about what does spending mean? Does spending include pensions? Does it include OPEB? Are we talking about equipment? A lot of this discussion at least seems to be driven by people seeing police equipment on TV. A lot of that equipment is either lent to the police or given to the police through U.S. Department of Defense program. So again, just to put out there that people should think about what is the variable they're really interested in and really what is driving what they're looking at. It's not to say that reform has not fiscal dimensions. Those are outside my expertise. They clearly are important and they do exist. But from my area of expertise, I would just caution people to think about what do they really mean by spending and what are the sources of data that they're looking at? And with that, I'll give it back to you, Bill. Thanks very much, Dan. I want to return to your comments on smoothing in one second when I introduce Juliet. I want to remind everybody you're listening to Special Briefing uh, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. You can follow this and uh, all of our past episodes on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. Just Google us right there and also follow us both on social media. Of course, one interesting thing about the police data discussion that Dan brought up is you're absolutely right. You have to know what you're talking about. And uh, from our cursory looks at the, at the data, it's not entirely clear what's in there and, and what isn't there. Police cars in New Jersey and New York uh, tend to be bought, bought centrally and come out of capital budgets rather than operating budgets. So we really need a, a, a fuller discussion. And I think as, as Mike Bloomberg used to say as mayor, or at least it was attributed to him, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And that's really the, the most important thing. If we're going to have re- reforms of any sector of government, they really need to be driven by good data. Otherwise, you, you just end up with bad decisions. Talking about state budgets, in our work at the Volcker Alliance, it called Truth, Integrity, and State Budgeting, we've actually chronicled many of the ways, many of the, the techniques states use to declare their budgets in balance, but no, because nobody's ever de- described or defined what a balanced budget is, much less what which accounting system, there's a lot of room there. And many one-time actions are already in use and have been, were in use during the during the recovery and during the economic boom. So states are no uh, are no stranger to this, and it does it's not just borrowing. It, it, there's a there's a whole list litany of, of things. So it gets me to introducing Juliet Tennant. Juliet has, has seen budgeting up close and personal, both from the, the state legislature and as state budget director, and now as an observer at University of Utah. Juliet also watches a big swath of the Western states for us. Utah has a reputation for very, very conservative with a lowercase c uh, fiscal management and also practices budget stress testing. So it may not have caught this one, but it's it has experience in building policy based on scenarios. So, Juliet, uh, you know, it's, give us an idea first of, about the picture in the West. The, the coronavirus has had various impacts on Western states, but you've also had tremendous volatility in energy prices, which was there before coronavirus hit and has been exacerbated by that. So you have a lot of cross currents <laughs> making for very difficult budget decisions right now in your area. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bill. And I'll be as brief as possible just because I'm excited about a conversation. But yeah, I'm here to give a little bit of a context about the West. And as Bill mentioned, there's actually there's just a great diversity in what's going on. I'll provide let me provide you with a little bit of context and then we can talk about the current landscape and a couple of considerations for the outlook for the economy and of course public budgets. So I think we have to, even though there's a lot of diversity in the economies in the West, and as you mentioned, we have energy, you know, and um, some of our states are very energy dependent, others are look more like the US in terms of the distribution of industry, there still has been a commonality among most Western states, there's been tremendous economic growth over this last expansion. So, you know, we know that the nation's job base expanded by about 15% over the last 10 years, this was absolutely led by the West, seven of the 10 states that had a job base expansion of over 20% were in the West. And if you, I guess if you go by like 
maybe an East Coaster's definition of the West and you want to include North Dakota and Texas in the West, then nine of 10 states that had had job growth over 20% over that period. So the West is a place of great growth. And that understanding that's important when thinking about where economies are positioned currently and where we expect them to be positioned in, in a recovery. So as we're seeing the economic impacts, those states that are, you know, coming into this contraction with very low unemployment rates, high degrees of economic activity, are we're, we're seeing less severe economic outcomes in those places. And that happens to be well concentrated in the West. And then there's this other dynamic, demographics. And Professor Goolsby mentioned earlier the virus and it's this is all really all about the virus and what's happening with health. Uh, the West we have we most of the Western states uh, tend to be younger. We know that the most severe outcomes with COVID-19 are in those older populations with um, comorbidities. And so just the fact that these populations are younger has helped some. And then also there's you know, there are lower population densities uh, generally in some of these places. And so the transmission rates and the just the outcomes in some of these Western states are um, less serious, which has helped maybe to soften some of the impacts. So that being said, though, this contraction is touching every corner of the United States. And so if, you know, if a place is not impacted directly and a high degree from COVID-19 on the health side, it absolutely is impacted on the economic side. Uh, I think it's 80% of counties uh, saw their unemployment rates, over 80% of counties, right, saw their unemployment rates double within, you know, between February and February and April, which is, you know, just shows you how serious and severe this contraction has been. And so when we look at a place like Utah and, or Idaho, Colorado, where the unemployment rate is low relative to the U.S. unemployment rate, we're still talking about, for example, in Utah, an unemployment rate going from 3% to 9% tripling. So the current landscape is that many of these places have been better positioned moving into this, but are still experiencing quite a bit of challenge. Considerations kind of, so I, yeah, putting my state budget hat on and thinking through what this means for public budgets moving forward, what, you know, economic outcomes. Uh, in the near term, on the benefit side, these states that had strong economic expansions were able to build up fairly healthy fiscal reserves. So, you know, we, we'll probably talk a little bit about the use of rainy day funds, but those places that experienced all this job growth, experienced growth in GDP, have been able to build up those rainy day funds. And then there's a concentration of smaller businesses and large families, which I think might lead to the federal stimulus going a bit farther in some of these places. And so you've got, you know, they're incredibly difficult challenges, relatively severe, but you know, like somewhat mitigated, and then you layer that on maybe that federal fiscal stimulus going a little bit further, that might bode well for some public budgets moving forward. And then, of course, on the demographic side, uh, having those lower ages or, you know, younger population, lower population density, potentially better positioned moving into a recovery. But the thing that I'm thinking about most is the challenge of growth. So those places that experience great economic growth are also, of course, just experiencing great population growth. And so there's this great pressure on public budgets in these high growth areas already. And then we layer on the um, counter cyclical increase in demand for government services on top of that already a lot of pressure on these public budgets. And we get into a place where it will be difficult for states to navigate through this recovery. Thanks, Juliet. And Susan, why don't you kick it off? I, I know you wanted to key off of some comments that uh, uh, that Philip Swagel from the uh, Congressional Budget Office uh, 
I made yesterday of the role of federal aid. So uh, let's start there. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Juliet, for your uh, regional view on the West that's been our growth engine and, as you say, will likely lead the recovery. But the additional needs going forward, given the demographics for investment in our youth. And also to you, Dan, for the balanced budget discussion and your point that we will need to relook at, take a new look at that, given the uh, lack of ability for balanced budget requirements and reserving to meet the challenges of this kind of major economic um, event. And let me back back out again to look at the nation as a whole. And Austin, Mark, you may wish to address, and uh, D'Angeli may wish to as well. Recently, the CBO director, Phil Swagel, said that the ARRA did help states and cities avoid public employee layoffs and tax hikes. hikes. Do you agree with this assessment? And do you uh, think that federal aid this time around that we've already in place is sufficient to prevent further large layoffs and or state and local tax increases will then have additional impact on layoffs. I think that, Mark, you've already, your earlier remarks did point to an answer here, but do you want to weigh in again on whether the assistance so far has had its desired effect and and therefore really we're done. Sure. Maybe since Austin, you know, was front and center during that period, maybe Austin, maybe you'd like to go first and I'll react to what you say. Sure. There were several parts to the question. Let me just work backward through them. The first is, will this prevent the problems of 2009 from happening this time? I don't think it will. I think there was recent report from this past week that sounded overly extreme to me, but it's suggested that already almost a million teachers have been furloughed or lost their jobs because of budget cuts, and it's still very early. So I think there would be no way to avoid the problem of 2009 being magnified even bigger if the federal government didn't act. In 2009, I think Phil Swagel is probably looking at the administration and the Council of Economic Advisors had to put out these, it was required by law to put out a quarterly report of everything that we knew about the impact of the ARRA. And from those reports and others, we have developed kind of bang for the buck calculations of how much in for short run stimulus, what are the things that are most effective, that get out the door most effectively, that preserve jobs, that increase growth and things like that. Some of the highest bang for the buck things were things that the federal government gave money to states so that they would not have to cut X program. But the flip side of that is politically, those were also the most unpopular things. And when it came down, the if you remember the Stimulus ended up coming down really to one vote. And all of the marginal voters demanded that there be less money given to the states and more on tax cuts. So I fear that that dynamic could play out again, that it would be effective at preventing the unemployment rate from going higher than it needs to go. But it also might might be something that's that's not popular as a form of rescue. So just to reinforce a few points that uh, Austin made, uh, we've calculated our own multiplier or bank for the buck. And it's, and I don't mean to apply too high level of precision, but just to give you the number, 1.34. So for every dollar in support to state and local governments, you get a, a buck 34 in GDP uh, one year after uh, providing that support. That's a very high multiplier bank for the buck compared to most other forms of fiscal support. I will say other estimates have come in much higher than that. So there were a number of studies done evaluating the Recovery Act, the AARA legislation. Christy Romer, who was also CEA chair, I think before you, Austin, did a number of those studies and, you know, very controlled studies and found the multipliers to be 1.5 to 2. Uh, so uh, very substantive uh, bang for the buck. Uh, there's no, in my view, there are very few other ways to provide as much support to the economy uh, during 
uh, a recession or a severe recession than uh, providing that help. With regard to the current uh, period, we, we have already lost 1.5 million state and local government jobs. The pace, at, the rapidity at which these job losses have taken place, very surprising to me. You know, expected job loss, but not like this as quickly. State and local governments are, you know, tend to be a little slower to make these kinds of cuts, but it just highlights the severe stress they're under and the fact that they have uh, no option. And in our calculations, if there is no further support coming from the federal government, except for continuing to foot the bill for the direct health care costs of the, of the virus, the job losses state and local government are, are not even quite halfway done. We'll see another million and a half lost jobs. And again, these are, you know, middle paying jobs. These are right down the middle of the income distribution. And here's the other point. They're in every community across the country. You know, it's not just a a D state problem, it's it's or an R state problem. This is a an American problem. I have to say, I, I can't, don't think there is a policy response to a recession that has such bipartisan support, at least among economists. I mean, you know, from Austin, the, I was just on a call with uh, Glenn Hubbard. Uh, you know, is a uh, AEI kind of Republican. I've never seen uh, such strong bipartisan support. For this kind of policy. So I, I, it just would be mind boggling if, if, again, Congress and administration can't get it together pretty soon and pro- provide that help. Uh, otherwise, we have a very serious problem. Let me just um, get back to the seriousness of the problem, Mark, uh, because that, that your comments earlier went by very quickly. Could you go back to them and tell us again uh, your assumptions of a severe recession, perhaps, or the word, the D word, depression? If, in fact, we do not have leaders across the political spectrum coming back with a second fiscal support to state and local governments. Yeah, well, here's the issue. I mean, once the business reopenings are complete, as far as they can complete, given the rules and the social distancing that were made in place, you know, on the other side of that, and I think that's on the other side of Labor Day, there's no source of growth. And on top of that, the fiscal support that's already been provided by Congress and administration, which is considerable, you do the, you add it up, it's $2.4 trillion, you know, 13, 14% of GDP, which is more than all the fiscal support provided during the financial crisis, the Recovery Act, AARA, and anything else that follows. So this is substantive. But on the other side of Labor Day, that money is gone. I mean, we've already spent more than half of the $2.4 trillion. It's all gone. And we're still going to be left with close to double-digit unemployment and these job losses, uh, mass job losses occurring in state and local government. That means we're going back into uh, recession, meaning, uh, forget about the level for a second, the level, as Austin pointed out, is going to be incredibly low, but we're going to start going negative again on growth. And once that happens, I think the sentiment will be, which is already you know, incredibly fragile. I mean, people are shell-shocked, I mean, on every level. That's just going to undermine any semblance of of sentiment that remains. And that, in my view, is the fodder for going back into double-digit unemployment and not getting out for a long time. And that, you know, again, there's no official definition of depression, but in my view, double-digit unemployment for more than a couple of years, that would be a depression. And that seems very plausible and likely to me if policymakers can't get it together and provide more support. I should make one quick point. That's, that's any kind of support. I mean, you know, they may come up with other forms of support, not help state and local government, but if they don't provide any additional support, you know, we're, we're going back in and it's going to be very hard to get back out. So let me just uh, point to underline what I, what I think I've heard you say, which is that the momentum that is in the recovery right now is not sufficient because the funding that is supporting it is coming from the government and it's the recovery that we see right now is reliant on that support, which goes away on the other side of Labor Day. So without some support and without coming together politically to determine what the nature of that support will be, then we're going back into double-digit unemployment. And it's the momentum will not carry us through. It is, and it doesn't depend on even COVID. Even with COVID recovery, we are reliant in your forecast on the level of government spending, which if it declines, and right now it will inevitably on the other side of Labor Day, will be back in double-digit territory with the then sentiment uh, bringing us down further, which of course is a picture for the cycle uh, that's reinforcing and not a pretty grim picture 
I want to turn it back to Bill, but perhaps in the in, we have a number of more specific questions, but perhaps we can, as we uh, on the other, uh, look at the general picture again from all of our speakers as we uh, bring this to a close. Bill? Thanks, Susan. I want to remind everybody in the, the special briefing audience that we have contact information for all the speakers, as well as Susan and me, on the final slide. It'll be on the archive. If you want to follow up with any of us, we'd be uh, most appreciative, and, and please do. I wanted to, to, to actually shift a little. There, there's a couple of questions that have, that have come up in this and past, uh, past special briefings. Today came from um, Alec Ian Gershberg at the University of Pennsylvania. This applies to, to a bunch of states in this environment. What are the chances of realignment of, of especially state tax systems, uh, but lo local as well? You have uh, cities that are very heavily reliant on sales taxes, uh, in some cases on, on wage taxes or occupational taxes. Illinois has, has been grappling for years with revising it, both revising its its 5% flat income tax, as well as expanding its sales tax base, which is, uh, which, which is very outdated. So is this an opportunity for, for states to gain more revenue at the margin through tax reform? And maybe Dan and, and Juliet might be, uh, might, might be best to, to tackle that. I think that if anything, this situation just highlights a need for diversity and revenue sources. And so even if it's not about tax reform to increase revenue, tax reform to address volatility uh, is important. And I think that this situation is a really good example of the need for that. So those places with more diverse revenue sources, you know, between income, sales tax, other types of revenue sources are a bit better positioned to deal with some of these things. And so I do think that you will see, I mean, it's just, I, you know, someone mentioned we're, we're shell-shocked right now and policymakers are just trying to get through how, you know, how we, we're facing these large budget gaps and how do we fill them, just trying to get through the near term. But longer term, I do think that there is an opportunity to realign some of these tax systems. And perhaps this event uh, will provide some motivation or, or momentum in places where those discussions are already taking place. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the interaction with the economic base of the state. For instance, in the state of Delaware, uh, we have no sales tax. There is a gross receipts tax that's small and sort of like a sales tax of Anyway, it's hard. It's small, and most consumers don't detect it. And you know, most of what we shut down would have hit the sales tax very hard. But a lot of people who pay income tax here were able to work from home nonetheless. And there was uh, through the CARES Act, a lot of the people who are not working right now were still be able to pay something akin to income taxes, even if the receipts are delayed. So I think it has a lot to do with. I think states should think about not just relying their revenue sources, but thinking about where the revenue sources align with their economic activity. And I think that's a slightly different, but more fundamental uh, activity that they might consider doing. Many states, so again, in the case of the state of Delaware, we realized our revenue wasn't that volatile over the years, but the expenditures were. So that's why the governor and the, the last past treasurer did an exercise of basically through executive order, uh, forcing the governor, forcing himself and uh, future governors to basically do what's akin to a second rainy day fund, if I'm going to give the one second version since we're running out of time. So I think states, if they want to think about reform, I think now is a good time. It always, you know, Obviously, anytime things look bad is a good time to think about whether what you're doing is the right thing. But I think it's a little uh, deeper than just thinking about revenue sources. It's about aligning your revenue source through your economic activity and also looking at the expenditure side. And I don't mean spending cuts for spending cuts sake, but thinking about given our institutional constraints, can we think about in the cases of you know rare and extreme adverse conditions, could we smooth those expenditures over just one fiscal year? I mean, I'm not a run government like a business person. There's a lot of reasons we do not do that, but just again, make it comprehensible to people, no business is imagining taking this whole hit in one of their fiscal years. 
And most not-for-profits are not going to take this hit in one fiscal year either. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. In the minute or so we have left, I just want to see if we have any closing comments. I just want to point out, we've had a couple of questions on the Fed's municipal liquidity facility, and we're going to be taking that up in greater detail in next week's session, 11 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday. So hold those questions and we will get to them then for sure. So do we have any, uh, any like 10 second final comments before we hit the top of the hour? Well, I'll jump in and I'll just maybe, um, going back to the discussion that we were having about ARA and how important those ARA funds were to the states. And, you know, I was in a budget office at that time and those stimulus funds absolutely supported in part addressing that downturn in Utah, a relative, a place with a relatively healthy economy at that time. And so there's the stimulus pushing money into the economy moving forward will be important in, you know, help helping to maybe mitigate some of the risk for uh, depression. And I just, you know, I, I think that as much when, when policymakers are, are thinking about what that stimulus looks like, providing as much flexibility to the states as possible will hopefully, you know, result in the best outcomes. And I would just add a, one note. I think of optimism, which is if you look around the world, we still don't have a vaccine, but many countries have kind of figured it out. If the OECD just put out in the last one or two days its index of all the rich countries of the world, mm. how they've responded. And the U.S.'s unemployment is the worst, has gone up the most by far of any country. If we follow a path that that is now somewhat well-worn of do some testing, do some tracing, focus on public health so that you can get the economy back on track while simultaneously providing whatever are the most effective forms of relief to prevent the unemployment rate from continuing to stay high or to even go higher. I think we've kind of learned that there are things you can do and it's not just a hopeless endeavor that we're on a one-way road to 1932. That's a very hopeful way to uh, to conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, audience. Thanks to Susan Walker at PennIUR and to my colleagues at Boker Alliance for making this uh, run so smoothly. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.